Lord Jesus Christ, you are our King, and you are amazing and inspiring, and you uh, are astounding to us. I ask, Lord, that you would open up the scriptures to us this morning, that we might hear from you, bind me from saying anything that might be harmful to these, your people. And it's in your name and for your glory we pray. Amen. Please be seated. So if you yourself have children, or if you have nieces and nephews, or if you in fact are a child yourself right now, then you know that there are quite a few voices in the world that are telling parents how to raise their kids. I mean, everywhere you go, there's some new opinion that's being exposited and whatnot. You know, for Molly and I, we have my parents we could listen to for advice. We have her parents that we could listen to for advice. Sometimes those are conflicting. Sometimes if we choose to do something that our parents didn't do, you get the line of, well, it was good enough for you, wasn't it? You know, maybe you've heard these things. But you can get advice from neighbors, you can get advice from your own siblings. And then when it comes to books and resources and philosophies, there's so many opinions that are out there. You can swing towards like the Dr. Spock, like attachment parenting sort of stuff. Or you can, go away, you can go to the other end of like very regimented sleep schedules and things of that nature. Then there's tons of like parenting blogs that are out there where there's new ideas that are just popping up all the time. And so the job of a parent is to discern which voice is actually worth listening to. Because as you know, there's quite a bit of garbage that's out there, right? But your job is you, you have to pick at least one philosophy You can't just completely um, opt out of choosing a a system or or some sort of way of of raising up kids because at minimum, that would be confusing to the child, but then at most, that would be damaging you know, and sometimes even abusive to the child if you're sending them conflicting messages and whatnot. So parents need to land on a clear voice. Well, this is kind of a microcosm of the spiritual problems and all the various spiritual philosophies that we have in today's world. Like raising a child, caring for the health of your own soul can be equally exhausting. It can be confusing, it can be disorienting. There's a cacophony of voices that are out there claiming that they are the authority when it comes to matters of finding peace and meaning in this life. And again, if we ignore these problems, if we pretend like those things don't exist, Just like with parenting, at minimum, it can be confusing to yourself and to your soul. And at most, it can be abusive and damaging to those around you if you decide not to pick a philosophy. Well, the passage that we'll be looking at today, you may have already gleaned, is going to be from the Gospel of Mark. And this marks the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, where he stands in the midst of many spiritual opinions and philosophies of his day. There were the parties of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Essenes. And each of these were expounding their own theological ideas on what a godly life ought to be, or how a godly life ought to be best lived. And then besides that, there's also the whole pantheon of Roman gods that are out there and the traveling philosophers of the day, the Stoics and whatnot, who would come and travel through the town, again, trying to claim that they have the authoritative um, understanding or viewpoint of what life is supposed to look like. So when it comes to matters of the soul, things were just as loud and noisy then as it is today, right? And this is the world that Jesus steps into. And we see in our passage that Jesus completely astounded the people. He astonished them. So if if you have your Bibles, open up to the first chapter of Mark. 
And you'll notice also in the bulletin, there was a typo. It's not Mark verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 1. There should be a 2 there, so it starts at 21. You guys are smart people. I figure you would have picked up on that. <clears throat> so if we scale back for a moment, and if we remember the kind of the context of where we are in the Gospel of Mark, we'll remember that Jesus is calling disciples. He's called, um, in Mark's Gospel, he's called about four disciples by this point, and he's bid them to come and follow me. This also fits with our church calendar, right? So again, we had Advent, we had Christmas, and now we're in the season of Epiphany, where we're seeing Jesus' ministry start to grow and build. And so this is kind of the first mark of him actually um, going and speaking out into the community. And he calls the disciples to come and follow him. He gives them a new identity, and he signs them up for this adventure that they, they have no idea how it's going to end. But they join him on this journey, this journey that's just beginning. And it begins here in a synagogue, the heart of the community. On the Sabbath, the heart of the week, here it begins. And as the text tells us, he taught as one who has authority, not as the scribes. Now the word for authority uh, in, in the original language is actually a little awkward here in this setting. This isn't a usual um, place for the word authority. Uh, this particular word is usually has a connotation of royal authority with it. Um, usually this is a word that was uh, used uh, at the installation of like a new king. Uh, so a new king would be installed, and this word would be used to describe the authority that was starting to take place to birth there. Specifically, a king who is anointed by God. And so what this tells us here is God's royal reign is about to begin. Now, Mark doesn't tell us here in this particular passage what exactly is being shared. We don't know. And personally, I think the reason why is, and I didn't read this in any commentary, so you can chalk this up as Rick's speculation if you want. But I think what Mark is doing here is he's drawing out a little bit of suspense. He's not giving us the details of what Jesus is saying here, because he's going to show us that later on. So it's kind of like we, the readers, are thinking, well, what is this astounding teaching that Jesus is saying? So Mark wants us to keep reading. And, you know, later what we'll find, we'll find teachings of parables, of God's kingdom and how it grows. We'll hear clarifications of God's law, especially as it contrasts to what's being taught uh, currently at that day. But for now, Jesus, or Mark simply wants us to know how Jesus' teaching is coming across to the people. And what he says is that it's remarkably different to the teaching of those of the scribes. You see, the scribes of those days, they were religious leaders, uh, they would have been people who, um, kind of like lawyers and attorneys, who know the law really, really well. They know the law super well. Uh, sometimes these were assistants to various traveling teachers and whatnot. So they'd always put their stamp of approval on various laws or interpretations of the law. So if you heard a scribe teaching in your midst, usually what you would hear are ways to improve your life, uh, specifically as it pertains to like rituals of cleaning, um, personal holiness. So you'd hear things about don't eat this, always wash your hands in this sort of setting, uh, don't go here, don't talk to those people. So basically these scribes were curators of lists and they loved to give people homework. They loved to give people their to-dos in order to gain God's approval. And again, then Jesus comes along. He has homework for us, but it's different. But Jesus is not simply regurgitating old, stale laws. No, he speaks as one who has experienced for himself and is experiencing for himself the fullness of what life has to offer. 
he's not innovating here, um, or this isn't a statement about innovation. It's not like he's creating, um, I mean, there are ways in which he's creating new commandments, but he's, he's fulfilling the law, basically. He's showing us the truth. Jesus is authoritative because what he says is good, because what he says is full, it's beautiful, it's whole, and it's true. That's why what he says is authoritative. So about a year ago, this is uh, when I was uh, working at Minnehaha, teach, uh, working at Minnehaha. Um, I did a bunch of tech stuff there, and I was invited to come and listen at this conference uh, where the keynote speaker was Captain Heidi Marie Piper. And she's an astronaut, a former astronaut, and I've never heard an astronaut speak before. Like, this is really cool. <laughs> this is awesome. It was a great experience. And she shared with us about her experiences in space, doing spacewalks, repairing equipment, um, conducting experiments and whatnot. It was really, really cool. And she shared about how she actually got there, and she had an awesome military career. Um, I wish that my daughters could have been there to, to hear this hero. Uh, it's just, she was just incredible. It's funny, she shared this story, and I forget what year this would have been. This may be like mid to late 80s or so. But she was doing a spacewalk, and she looked out, and all of a sudden she saw her toolbox just floating, floating away. And I, I've never been to space, but I think that when something's floating away like that, you're not supposed to go out and get it. You just kind of say goodbye to it. Um, but she forgot to tether it properly, basically, is what happened. And apparently this air cost NASA, like, millions of dollars and whatnot. She says it wasn't the highlight of her career. But it was a cool, exciting story. Uh, and as she spoke, she talked about the way in which, like, the laws of physics and gravity kind of um, affect the environment and up there. And some of the things that she said, I had heard before, just from my high school physics class. And, you know, this isn't a knock against Mr. Kiefer. He's an awesome teacher. I still remember uh, him very, very well. He still tease me every now and then on Facebook, too, like a good high school teacher does. But the way in which Captain Piper spoke was different than the way that Mr. Kiefer spoke. Because she's actually been to space, right? She has this intimate knowledge of outer space. And so when it comes to the laws of gravity and physics and all of that good stuff, she just couldn't, her authority carried so much more weight than Mr. Kiefer. Well, if the scriptures are true about Jesus, and I believe that they are, then Jesus is God in the flesh, the second person of the Trinity. So how much greater is his teaching on morality and ethics and religious um, practice and the nature of God himself? You see, te Jesus teaches as one with pure and beautiful and good authority. Well, our text doesn't end there. In fact, it's just getting started. You see, Jesus doesn't only carry authority with his word, but he carries authority with his deed as well. So not just his word, but his deed as well. The text tells us Mark uses one of his favorite words immediately. Uh, and it's just a striking uh, word telling us that immediately this, unclean, this man with an unclean spirit came and stepped into the synagogue. Now, here in the community center, you know, maybe we wouldn't be too surprised if something like that happened. I mean, this is a public space. People come in. Um, you know, we'd still be a little rattled by that, I'm sure, uh, even though this is kind of a sometimes stinky gym and whatnot. Uh, but in their day, this would have been incredibly rattling, incredibly uh, startling for them because it's the Sabbath, they're in the synagogue, this is a very holy, central place to the community. You know, it's in church. 
And it's safe probably to assume that the man was an absolute wreck. He comes in, he's yelling his head off about stuff. And Mark specifically says that the spirit within him is unclean, as if just to reiterate how inappropriate it is for this man to be there. And the man screams out. He says, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Or another way to phrase this question is, what do you and I have in common? This is a phrase that pops up sometimes other, uh, elsewhere in the Old Testament that's used when, in, when someone who is inferior is speaking to a superior. What have you to do with us? What are you doing here? So it's worth noting that the, the demon inside of the man is completely spooked and surprised that Jesus is here. Especially here in Galilee. I mean, this is kind of the outskirts of, of um, Israel. So the demon's completely shocked. You see, Jesus' incarnation, the fact that God came down and clothed himself in flesh, isn't just a stumbling block to us and confusing to us. It was actually shocking and completely unexpected to the forces of darkness as well. And they think, maybe this is, maybe this is it. Maybe this is the end times. Maybe God is coming here on the earth to completely wipe us out right now. They don't know what his plans are in, in saving humanity. He said, these, uh, this demon speaks out and says, have you come to destroy us? You see, the demons know what their eventual end is. They know that there will be a final day in which God himself will come and balance all the scales of justice. Every wrong will be redeemed, and Satan and his minions will be banished forever. They'll no longer have any power over us. And that is the fear that's going on in the demon's mind right now. Maybe now is that scary moment for them. You see, Jesus' presence in the small town of Galilee is completely confusing to the enemy. He wonders if the end times have begun. In other words, the king has stepped into the, the garbage heap of human sin and darkness, and the rats are shaking in their boots. They're absolutely terrified. I know who you are, exclaims the demon. You're the Holy One of God. That's such a beautiful phrase, the Holy One of God. You know, it's filthy coming out of the mouth of a demon, but still, this is a true title of who Jesus is. The title that's been used of Aaron and Elisha in the past. So it is possible, we don't know for certain, but it is possible that the demon is confessing that Jesus is that messianic high priest who will bind up the works of the devil. Well, regardless, the demon does know that Jesus and God have an intimate, special relationship. Jesus is God's high, holy priest and prophet. But Jesus doesn't like hearing these words from the demon. They're bothering to him. And so Jesus looks straight through the man at the demon and says, Be silent. Come out of him. Now our English translation doesn't quite capture the, um, how, how upset, we'll say, Jesus was. That word um, for be silent, it could mean to muzzle or to tie shut. You know, our English language, we yell shut up at, at times when we're really angry. That's, that's the force that Jesus would have been saying to this demon. And in fact, the demon does obey. The demon leaves the man, but like a child who kicks their sibling on her way to time out, the demon abuses his victim one more time before con by convulsing the man. My children never do that, by the way. They, they are, they're just, and I'm sure your children never do. I just heard that's something that you know, some kids sometimes do. It's you know, definitely not us people. So it's interesting to me that Jesus doesn't command the man to go but instead he commands the demon to go. Because by law, by the culture, that man is unclean. He's in a synagogue. 
Jesus, as a respected rabbi in that moment, had the authority to say, you are not welcome here. You need to go as well. Uh, You need to go and cleanse yourself. But Jesus didn't do that. And elsewhere in the scriptures, not in this particular story, we see the way in which Jesus deals with the sin of people, deals with their uncleanliness, um, definitely speaks truth into that. But then he honors the individual, and he brings them close to him, and he blesses them. Now, uh, we, we don't know the way that this story ended here, but it's probably confident, it's, it probably is reasonable to say that Jesus was very honoring uh, of this man. So this last week I was uh, able to catch up with one of my friends from seminary who, uh, he's an Anglican priest at a, at a small church in Louisiana, and it's just fun to compare notes and whatnot. I mean, this isn't uh, Louisiana by any stretch, uh, praise the Lord. Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry if you're. I'm sorry. That stays in this room, okay? Can you like bleep that out? <laughs> no, okay, sorry. So I was catching up with my buddy um, Alan, and uh, th- their church, even though it's a small church, they are a, a mission-minded church, and it's beautiful to just hear stories of ways in which the individuals in their church are are giving quite sacrificially just to love on the neighborhood around them. Uh, and they actually have a very vibrant homeless ministry as well. And, you know, these things happen. You, you minister to folk, you invite them to church, and guess what? They come to church. Well, this, you know, so folks who live on the street would be coming into the church. Now, there's some church people who, who actually don't like that, right? And we've probably all, you know, have been to churches like that. Well, what Alan did is he was like, oh, you know, these, a lot of these men and women, they, their clothes, they, they need to be washed. They haven't, they haven't been cleaned in a long time. And so he used some of the church funds to buy a washer and dryer, and he installed them in the church sacristy, which that's kind of a, an Anglican word for the room that all like the fancy vestments are, and um, that's where like all the communion stuff is stored and the banners and all that. So it's, it's kind of like a, a special, like, you know, sacred room. It's a sacristy. Well, this, this was a big no-no, according to some people who go to his church, to, to be washing these clothes in this kind of room. And some people actually left the church because of it, which is, is sad, but probably not surprising, right? Because wa- uh, worshiping alongside the unclean for these people was a breaking point for them. Well, one of the questions that Molly and I get, and this comes up especially at our newcomers' dinners, are what is restoration? It's come up at every single newcomers' dinner, actually is what kind of outreach is, is restoration going to be doing? And right now, we are in this people gathering stage, right? We're a brand new church. We just started weekly services in November. And what our prayer is, is what, what we're doing is we're waiting. We're waiting to see what sort of gifts you all have and what sort of passions you all have uh, to kind of see what sort of outreach the Lord has in store of us, for us. And our prayer, and this is actually one of the values of the church, is hospitality, but our prayer is that we will be hospitable to all sorts of people, regardless of their issues. I had one of my professors used to say, I got issues, you got issues, all God's children got issues. And I want that to be a kind of a common thing at our church, right? You know, we, we should be honored to introduce people to the healing authority of Jesus Christ, regardless of what their background is. And that, I think, is what we see here in Mark's gospel. He is dealing with people and loving on people and healing people. So we see his authority demonstrated in his word. 
but we also see his authority demonstrated in his deed. He's contrasted to the scribes and the word that they're teaching, and he's contrasted to the demonic powers and the works that they have. And now we're going to see how the people actually react to this stuff. So in verse 27, again, the people are amazed, and Mark repeats some of the stuff that they've been saying. They say, what is this? A new teaching and authority. He commands even the evil spirits, and they obey him. Now, we're going to hear this line again later in Mark's gospel. Remember when Jesus calms the storm? And how do the disciples respond to that? They say, who is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? You see, Jesus was and is and will always continue to be the great astonisher. Whenever you and I or anyone interact with Jesus, we're like, what is this? How could this be that, that even the darkness inside me is rattled and stirred by it? That he even calms the seas of my life? Now, in the second time when we hear this phrase, a new word is thrown in there. That's the word new. They say, what is this new teaching and authority? So what's so new exactly about Jesus' teaching? You know, we know that, um, we, do know, we don't know the, the content of what he actually said here. Uh, like, I, like I mentioned earlier. But it was unlike anything else it had ever been taught in the history of humanity. You know, Jesus says things like, blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. If someone slaps you on the cheek, turn also the other. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hurt you. Pray for those who persecute you. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. No one else had ever spoken like this before. So make no mistake about it. Jesus' teachings continue to be the source of love and life to those who follow him. So last week we looked at the uniqueness of God in that he alone holds both perfect love and power. He holds those both. And this week we see that Jesus' authority is on display both in his word and in his deed. So it's no wonder that we read here that Jesus' fame when he say frame, his fame is spreading all throughout Galilee. You see, he's not just a teacher. He's the Holy One of God who binds the works of the devil and sets the prisoners free. So uh, th- those of you who have children in your midst, maybe you're, you're aware of situations when your kids come to you because they've, they've got an issue that they're wrestling with. Uh, maybe they're being bullied in school. Or maybe they've got a question about their identity or vocation or something like that or calling. Or maybe it's an issue of just navigating relationships of, of classmates and, you know, recess, things like that. So in a healthy situation, in a good situation, the parents should be the ultimate authority uh, to their kids, right? Not, not as a dictator who demands submission and blind obedience and, and leans on their position as a parent to tell them what to do, but as a wise and experienced guide, someone who loves the child, and seeks her absolute best interest and wants to see her succeed in all things. And in that, it's in that loving authority that the child can rest. So there's two things in conclusion that I'd like to share about this passage. So the first is that we can rest in the authority of Jesus. Just like a, a good parent or a, a good boss or a, a trustworthy friend, we can lean in that authority of Jesus We can take our battles to him in prayer. You know, maybe we are being abused by an evil spirit. I know in today's modern world, that's not something that's usually kosher to talk about. But 
we can't deny the, the truth of scriptures and also the truth of our experiences that evil is out there lurking, seeking to destroy us. So maybe you're being abused by an evil spirit. Maybe something has us in its grips. So in the bold name of Jesus, we can cast this aside. We can lean on Jesus' power and authority. You know, we, can, we have an opportunity to do that uh, in, in a small way every morning here at Restoration. We've got prayer ministers during communion that you can go and bring things to and say, this is something that I'm grappling with and I'm struggling with. And they would love to pray with you um, in confidentiality about that issue. Or Molly and I, we'd love to meet with you as well. Um, we'd love to grab coffee with you, pray about something, lift those things up. So one point I'd love you to do is ask Jesus to move in your life in powerful ways, and he will astonish you, just like he astonished those with his teaching that day long, long ago. So secondly, go in the authority of Jesus as well. We aren't called as Christians merely to rest in Christ's authority, are we? All four Gospels repeat the same pattern over and over again. As we learn more about Jesus and his love and his character, who he is, and as we rest in that and lean into him, the more that we are healed, the more he sends us out to go, to go in his authority. In fact, Matthew's Gospel concludes in this way. Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority. Therefore, go and make disciples in other words, take my teaching and bring it out. Bring that authoritative teaching into your workplace, into your neighborhoods, into your families. Go and bring that out. Observe all that I have taught you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. He gives us his spirit, the spirit of Christ, with us when, we're, when we go, when we are sent. And that, brothers and sisters, is why we church. It's why we come to church week in and week out. We come to be fed and nourished and healed to enjoy his authority, to rest in his word. But then, every single service concludes with us being sent out into the world. So when you encounter the works of the devil, in your own life and in those around you, I ask that you see that Jesus has given you his authority to cast that out. Use his name and cast it out um, wherever we might find it. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.